welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. The impact of, of that uh, spill was not just environmental and economic, but it, it really kind of um, assaulted the people, that there was this preventable thing that was just going on in front of our eyes. Everyone was just thankful when it finally did end, so that's just what I remember is it was almost this, this, this relief that it was over. Destroyed our, our uh, beaches, our recreation, as far as our food supply. I took us quite a while to be able for those who eat the seafood to uh, even attempt to enjoy any seafood on the Gulf Coast. I mean, you'd have to live here, I think, or be from here to really understand how uh, how it's changed our way of life. On April 20th, 2010, the Deepwater Horizon rig was situated in the Macondo Oil Prospect, located 52 miles off the coast of Louisiana in 5,000 feet of water. The rig was owned and operated by offshore oil drilling company Transocean and leased by the British Petroleum Oil Company, BP. After more than two months of drilling, BP had just capped the well that now extended approximately 18,000 feet into the rock below, preparing it for a production rig to come in to begin harvesting oil and gas. At approximately 5 p.m. that evening, the crew noticed something unusual, a loss of fluid in the riser pipe, suggesting irregularities with the blowout preventer, a critical piece of equipment that would shut down the well in case of an emergency. Not long after, the crew lost control of the pressure in the well. At this point, the blowout preventer should have automatically engaged, sealing the well, but it did not. Gas surged from the well and up the riser, igniting. The explosions that followed tragically killed 11 workers on board and injured numerous others. On the morning of April 22nd, the rig capsized and sank, rupturing the riser in the process. Oil began discharging into the Gulf of Mexico and continued flowing until the well was capped in July. It was permanently sealed in September. In the interim, more than 4 million barrels of oil spilled into the Gulf, the largest spill in the history of marine oil drilling. The impacts were devastating for the ecosystems, economy, and way of life of communities along the Gulf Coast. You could go anywhere, and uh, it was on the TV, it was constantly on the TV, especially once there was the the video feed. Um, It it was just, uh, you could constantly literally watch the oil come out and watch the fact that there was little or nothing they could do about it for a long time. Um, It was very frustrating to see that there really was no plan in effect. Now, almost a decade later, in 2019, oil spill restoration and recovery efforts are ongoing. To some, they have only just begun. My name is Christina Libre. I'm a research associate with the Environmental Law Institute. And my name is Taylor Lilly. I'm the public interest law fellow here at ELI. We work with the Gulf Restoration Project. Today we'll be speaking with four residents of Gulfport, Mississippi, who are each at a different stage of engagement in the oil spill restoration process. We met these community members through our work on ELI's Gulf Restoration Project. The Environmental Law Institute has been working continuously in the Gulf of Mexico region since shortly after the Deepwater Horizon disaster in 2010, with funding and support from the Walton Family Foundation. 
In the beginning, much of our efforts were dedicated to deciphering the complex legal processes surrounding the litigation between BP and other oil companies and the federal government and helping the public better understand them. By 2016, once the criminal and civil lawsuits were settled and the three main processes for distributing settlement money had been set in motion, our work turned to tracking developments in the three funding processes and helping communities understand how they engage in these processes, as well as developing research reports to help support good governance and effective long-term restoration in the Gulf. Under the consent decree entered as a result of the settlement, restoration funding flows through three main processes. Approximately $8.8 billion will flow through the Natural Resource Damage Assessment, or NERDA, a process required by the Oil Pollution Act to compensate the public for natural resource damages and loss of use of injured resources. Another $2.5 billion will be administered by the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which established the Gulf Environmental Benefit Fund to disperse funding for natural resource projects of various types in the five Gulf states. The third process is taking place under a law known as the Restore Act, which was enacted in 2012. Pursuant to the Act and the settlement agreements, over $5 billion will flow through five different channels, which we call buckets, each of which has its own funding criteria and priorities. While ELI continues to track restoration developments Gulf-wide, recently we have been focusing our community engagement work on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, where we've been working to support the efforts of traditionally underrepresented communities to engage in the restoration process. Since we began working with these communities in November of 2018, We've had the privilege to hear from many residents of the Mississippi coast. As we approach the 10-year anniversary of the spill, we wanted to hear from the community members about their challenges, successes, and hopes in the restoration process. This is Howard Page. You heard him at the top of the podcast. Howard is a community organizer who has worked with ELI for several years. He seems to know everyone, and everyone seems to know and respect him. He devotes most of his time to working with what could be defined as environmental justice communities, marginalized or underrepresented communities who often face disproportionate harmful environmental impacts. I'm on the board of the North Gulfport Community Land Trust, and I also uh, work uh, very closely with the Gulf Coast group of the uh, Sierra Club. And um, I have uh, worked uh, for about 20 years. I'm here in, in Gulfport, and I've worked in environmental and environmental justice issues uh, here in this area and in, uh, in the coastal south for about 20 years now. I think for a lot of people not living in the Gulf Coast region, it may be surprising um, to understand that the restoration process is ongoing, even now a decade out from the, the spill itself. Um, I guess, what would you want someone who is not from the Gulf Coast, maybe not from Mississippi specifically, to understand about where coastal communities are right now and what the process is like? Well, they've, uh, they are trying to participate as best they can, but I think one of the things that coastal communities has is, of course, um, you know, who's actually speaking for the community. And, and as we know, individuals can be involved in the restoric process, organizations can be involved, or actual cities and governments uh, can all um, make proposals and in different ways kind of influence the process. But it's very complicated. There's a lot of restrictions. There's a lot of, uh, lot of rules. And then, of course, there's um, a certain understood bit of politics. The Restore Act was passed with the consent of Congress and involves the five state governors. And then there is a certain amount of, of, uh, of, 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 of decision making that, that comes from the political level um, on this. And so that, that's kind of understood. But uh, 
Um, I, I guess again, the challenge that people have is how to how to somehow influence this money, and and is it worth your time? Quite honestly, you hope that good things come out of it, but um, what I see a lot of individuals and even organizations talk about is uh, do the do the kind of uh, the politicians and the people who are part of the, the the necessary bureaucracy of running the Restore Act and of kind of working together collaboratively to spend all of that. Uh, that money, you know, toward the proper needs, um, the proper uh, outcomes. Um, where do where do individuals and small groups key in? And uh, and it's been a challenge. Um, but but fortunately, there have been efforts for that, and people are doing it. Um, but but that, that's what I would just kind of say is people are kind of awed at the process, and and they do understand some of it. Some of it is just the amount of money, the size of the problem, the the fact that politics were involved, and. Uh, um, but, but yes, I, I do think that people are definitely very interested. Howard's right. Communities are interested. And the good news is, even though almost a decade has passed, there's still quite a bit of money left for restoration projects. As of April 2019, only $4 billion of the $16.7 billion made available by each of the three main restoration processes has been spent on restoration planning, projects, and programs. The combination of complex legal processes and versatile funding streams creates a reasonable amount of confusion. Funds flowing through the Restore Act can be used for all the things one might assume. Water quality, green spaces, habitat restoration, etc. But it can also be used for workforce development, tourism, infrastructure, and even broadly those projects that improve the Gulf economy. Community members throughout the Gulf have the ability to impact the projects that are ultimately funded and implemented by submitting comments on plans, attending meetings, and submitting project ideas for funding. During our time working with communities, they have shared their hopes for projects that will not only restore what they lost, but also protect them against the next big event. Several communities have expressed interest in seeing green infrastructure improvements in their towns and are especially interested where those improvements have the potential to increase flood resilience. These concerns come on the heel of an increase in devastating weather events that have left residents thinking about how to prepare for a future where these events are more common. This is Christine Bryce. She has recently been described as Gulfport's angel in disguise. Officially, she is the election commissioner for District 4 of Harrison County. Her district has the most black residents in the entire county. Unofficially, she is a tireless volunteer for the homeless, the elderly, and anyone else who finds himself in a tough spot. So the election commissioner for District 4 in Harrison County, Gulfport, Mississippi. I've lived in my house uh, for over, well, over 43, I'd say approximately 43 years. And this is the first year uh, in 2016 that my house flooded. And at that time, uh, I had to move out of my house because of, because of the, uh, everything was running in my house. Also, in that same community, in that subdivision, we have several families that lost everything. And especially one person that I went to visit, uh, they had a little, little boy, and the little boy uh, had, to sleep on the, on the, uh, had to sleep on the floor off of months, and I had to go out and try to get some uh, different resources to, with, with, to help the family. So my concern would be uh, making a difference in families' lives that, uh, that uh, need help concerning everything that should be cleared up concerning the 
different uh, area that they flood. Here's Howard again. Are there any other specific projects that you would like to see funded and implemented under the restoration processes? Uh, well, there are. Um, I really hesitate because you know, um, cleaning up "quote unquote" from a oil spill is 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 really problematic, and it's hard to come up with with good solutions. I think I think oysters are one of them, just because, of course, they were damaged and uh, um, they're so necessary, but. Uh, um, I think as much as possible, uh, we need to restore um, natural ecosystems that, that work together, that, that we're all kind of, you know, very aware of, but from the, from the coastal marshes to the more inland bayous and swamps um, to the barrier uh, islands and, uh, and then the, the, the bottom layer, you know, the oyster beds and, and, and other healthy uh, bottom layers, that, that all of those... Uh, basically need to be focused on and uh, protected and we need to understand that so much damage was done that we need to identify what is left that is healthy and protect that as much as possible. Um, it's one reason I'm very concerned. Uh, one of my comments from the beginning in the BP process uh, was was to um, do no harm, that no matter what we did with the money, hopefully we would do good, but, but let's certainly do no harm. Even though the project's communities are interested in are worthwhile and technically fit within the goals and requirements of the funding streams, there are a few caveats. When you go to submit a project to Mississippi's online project idea portal, there is a pretty important disclaimer. The Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality, the state entity in charge of overseeing Mississippi's piece of the BP funding pie, has the ability to take ideas from the portal and combine them, alter them, or not use them in any way. What is more... The fact that you are the one to submit an idea to the portal doesn't guarantee that you will be the one to implement it. Engagement isn't always easy. This is Ruth's story. She has a long history of working on education initiatives in Gulfport, Mississippi, and she is the former president of the Gulfport branch of the NAACP. Currently, she works with ECHO, an environmental and social advocacy organization. Uh, I uh, am executive director of a nonprofit called ECHO. And uh, we deal with environment, uh, economics, uh, health, uh, so uh, finances with those in standing need. And we uh, work with other organizations in climate control and environment. For one, the restoration processes can be quite complex, even for folks whose job it is to decipher them. I guess it's that it's on such a level sometimes that even this over them, over their heads, and then things that they think are going to be able to be worked out turns around and something else came into play and it didn't work out the way we hoped it would. Engaging in the restoration process also requires patience. The life cycle from developing to funding to implementing projects isn't exactly short. And I think what happens is that people just get disgusted and tired and they just sort of don't see why or how they're even going to reach the goal they're trying to reach. They don't see a way. Ruth is not alone in her sentiments, but communities persist. Here's Howard again. Um, it, it's time, I think, is it's, it's, it's the big big challenge that, that uh, there is to keeping people um, involved. And uh, it's why I actually appreciate some of the work that's been done that I, I think that if people do stay involved 
large and small, if they just have projects in the portal and they're, they're aware of, of the meetings that announce where the process is on a regular basis, that, uh, that even that level of engagement is hugely beneficial. You know, the more, the more people at least understand the process and, and to the degree they can uh, participate, um, that, that, that's a start. But, uh, but we still have a long way to go, and it's just, it's just very tiring. Residents are also facing another challenge, distrust. Many of the community members that we have partnered with lived through the peak of the civil rights era and have engaged in civil rights activism in Mississippi for a long time. Many of these individuals carry with them formative confrontations with racism and both casual and systemic oppression, including actions on the part of state and federal actors. They have come to expect to have their voices ignored and in some situations silenced. Thus, they have some healthy skepticism about the system's ability or even willingness to incorporate their input in general, including when it comes to restoration funding decisions. The benefit, even though it benefits the whole Gulf Coast, a lot of people in, of color and in minority neighborhoods do not have access to the places that are getting the benefit of the money. During our time in the Gulf, ELI has learned that the best way to serve communities is to recognize where our expertise ends and where theirs begins. In light of that, we strive to hear from as many communities and residents as we can, so that we can develop resources that complement their efforts and the knowledge they have gained living and working on the Gulf. Although we cannot make the processes less tiresome or the legal mechanisms less complex, we strive to ensure that all communities have access to information, updates, and the tools they need to be as active as they would like. We do this by sharing information about approved projects and opportunities for public participation, developing educational resources, and hosting seminars in person and online. As we continue to work in the Gulf, we also continue to listen so that we might always be a relevant and useful resource. Recently, we have heard community members express that they are eager to pass the baton, as it were, onto the next generation of Gulf advocates. We're younger. Yeah, I want some younger people to come in here and fight, and I can move over to the side and, and just be uh, a support and not be out there in the battlefield. We were lucky enough to be introduced to Alandra Whitlock, a vibrant young journalist who was born and raised in Gulfport. The golf team first met Alandra during our listening tour in November. She shared with us her passion for making sure the house that she was raised in is protected and that the town that it sits in thrives. Alandra has become popular on Golfport for her efforts to keep her community specifically engaged. She has lent her time to the efforts of more than 40 social justice organizations and hopes to inspire as many young people as she can to join her. It happened in April. So um, I had just gotten home. And um, I heard about it through um, through um, the news, of course, as everyone else. And, and you know, I, I kept seeing things like this is the worst, you know, natural, not natural, but, um, you know, preventable disaster that ever took place. And it was, you know, explaining how much was spilled in the water. And uh, at this point, it was still kind of like uh, I didn't really digest. So I think it's important for us to grab the baton and to those that are interested, those that want to make a difference, those that want to utilize their voice to make a change. I think that this is this is this is definitely the time um, because no one is going to do it for us. Alandria knows that her peers look to social media for news and updates, 
so she has taken it upon herself to bring the town halls of the previous generation to the Facebook pages of the next. I'm excited about pushing um, the portal and at least getting it in front of a pair of eyes or a few pair of eyes that are interested in putting in some work and are interested in sitting down and maybe doing it for the greater good of a group of people versus, you know, just saying, oh, well, no one wants to do it. Somebody does. We just have to find those those millennials and, and young people that do. Stories like Alandra's lend a note of hopefulness for the future. Even though much time has passed and the challenges of public participation are lasting, communities are still hopeful and they remain committed to having their voices heard. After all, to them, the Gulf is not just another body of water on a map. It's their home and their heritage. What made you personally interested in getting involved? What made you decide to try and navigate these processes and be a voice for your community? Well, I think that that really does come from the fact that I... uh was was born here in Gulfport, and I've lived most of my life, uh, you know, fishing in the waters and, and uh, going on all the local rivers and, and bayous. And so um, I just really do have a love for the local area, and it's an, it's an amazing local area. I've done a little bit of traveling around the world. I think this area is, in some ways, as amazing as, as, as most others in its own way. You know, it's very unique, um, full of life, and... Uh, um, and um, it's, it's completely unnecessary, the damage that the PP disaster did. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.